0: Welcome to Media Voices. We take a look at the news and the views from the media world every week. To any new listeners, hello. This is gonna be a slightly atypical episode for reasons that we'll explain in a minute. And to our returning listeners, welcome back. I'm Chris Sutcliffe.
1: I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston.
0: And before we begin this week's episode, I do want to let you know that we have a special conversations episode coming up this Wednesday. So me and two fantastic guests take a look at everything to do with automated journalism and robot journalism busting a few myths about what is possible and what isn't possible with it, and more importantly, where we should be looking for it to make an impact on the bottom line in the future. So do come back this Wednesday for that special episode looking at robot journalism in collaboration with United Robots. We missed you over the summer and we are gonna do a proper roundup of all the summer's news, but for now, we're gonna get straight into what is effectively a very special episode. Guys, why is it special?
1: Because we got the chance to talk to Terry White Um, first interview after she left Empire as editor-in-chief we talked about what makes magazines brilliant we talked about what makes magazine staffs brilliant all sorts of things about how you make a great magazine but the most important point of this interview was really why Terry left Empire Um, she'll explain that way better than I can but it was really all about having a baby um, and Well, Esther, you can talk more. You can talk better to that than I can. Women need to make when they have babies. And I guess men need to make as well at points. So it's just really interesting. And we hope that you get as much from it as we did. Thanks for actually talking to us now that you're famous and have been on Loose Women. (laughs) You're, as far as I know, the first Media Voices guest that's been on Loose Women. So. Oh
2: my God. I can't believe you haven't been on Loose Women. Surely it's only a matter of time.
1: I'm not sure. I don't know if I'd want to be exposed like that. (laughs) Like, it might be quite difficult. Anyway, I'm talking to you as the former editor in chief of Empire Magazine, which is weird. It is weird. Your last day was Friday, the 3rd of September. Is that right?
2: Uh, No. So, my official last day of employment was Wednesday, the 1st. And then, but I actually left the Friday before t- took some actual holiday at the end of my tenure
1: to go camping
2: to go camping to oh. go yes everybody apparently That's a lot's changed since I left empire including I am now a camper
1: <laughs> so it's not the changes with empires it changes with you
2: apparently apparently I'm going through like because I think as human beings we always evolve and now I just feel like I've, I've evolved a lot in 10 days
1: Excellent. Although you did tell me that you went hiking and what was your outfit?
2: So I wore proper walking boots. Um yeah. I wore low-key promotional socks that Disney had sent me and <laughs> and a original 60s silk shift dress. Yes. Yeah. I knew
1: you hadn't changed that much. <laughs> so, how does it feel to be the former editor-in-chief of Empire magazine?
2: it just feel weird and i think definitely what helped was the 3 month notice period which i worked
1: right.
2: every single minute and and more than there was a bit when i was i was working till midnight two days before my last day wow. and my boyfriend said to me you know you're like technically working your notice and most people dial it back at at that point it's um it was a that 3 months it was kind of almost like grieving to be honest i was yeah. pretty much broken hearted initially really quite upset about it and then you know kind of I went through other feelings about it and so actually by the time it came to say goodbye I felt like it was done and I felt like it was time for me to go and the new editor is my old deputy who is a brilliant brilliant journalist and I'm so thrilled he got the gig so it kind of feels like everything's worked out as it should have done. And I've always said about Empire, you know, when you edit it, you don't own it, you're a guardian of it. Your job is to try and improve it if possible, but essentially just don't fuck it up. That was always the message to me and I think every other Empire editor. And it's an honour and it's a privilege and quite frankly, you know, six years I think is a good run, but I think any magazine, especially a magazine like Empire that has to stay relevant of the moment has to be part of cultural conversation that needs constant new ideas and I think an editor of like 10 years 20 years is the wrong approach for a magazine like Empire it needs a new voice a new spirit a new direction within kind of the parameters of of what it is um, every several years or so so I think in retrospect it's kind of all worked out as as it should
1: in your final editor's letter, you called yourself, or anyone actually who's an editor of Empire, a lucky guardian. What what do you mean by that guardian idea? What What is it you're actually looking after?
2: Well, it, it's interesting because I think that guardianship used to mean something else. So I think especially with legacy brands, and by legacy brand I mean just a magazine brand that's been going for years and has a lot of love attached to it, is that can be used as kind of gatekeeping almost. So it's like when I took over Empire, there was a lot of Empire doesn't do it like that. Empire would never interview that person. Empire would never have that kind of person um, in its pages or they wouldn't let that person write for them. There was a lot of belief around what Empire stood for and the rules around it. And not, I have to point out, not with the team kind of I ended up building and going forward with and and the, the old team I took with me. But there was a definite bit of that and I found that incredibly unhelpful and I think it's part of keeping people out of a brand. So I think being a Guardian, I viewed it as it's my job to protect the best bits of Empire. Mm. So the access, the incredible relationships with filmmakers and studios, the quality of the journalism, the quality of the team and the talent, the ambitious ideas, all of the things that makes Empire great, I felt like it was my job to protect and, you know, that could be anything from fighting budget cuts with management to fighting with the studio because I felt like access they gave us wasn't good enough to getting the pages right. of Empire. And and all of those things were kind of part of protecting Empire, but then more so your job as a Guardian is to see the future and to anticipate what the brand should be in five years and also what the audience wants from it in five years. Because truly you can only protect the long-term survival of the brand if you are future looking and I think too often you can get bogged down in the past you know yeah. the days when it had double budgets the days when it had 25 people working on a magazine when we've now got 11 people working on a cross-platform brand the kind of halcyon days I think hamstring you as an editor and I think you constantly have to see the opportunity not even really in today but in tomorrow and you know five years from now.
1: If I was to ask you what you think is your biggest achievement in those 6 years or the thing that you are most proud of in those 6 years at Empire, what would it be?
2: I think it would be opening up the brand which was kind of always my ambition and I wrote about this in my editor's letter. And I will also just say that I don't think I still don't think it's it's perfect and I still think there's work to be done. Uh-huh. But I was very conscious when I came into Empire that it it was primarily a magazine uh, built by a certain group of journalists. And often the audience was thought about in very reduced terms. So the audience were often kind of 30-something to 40-something men. Um, Women weren't really part of the conversation. And that kind of manifested itself in terms of, A, the people we featured in the pages, so the films we focused on, the filmmakers we focused on, and how we represented actors so little things like uh I brought in a rule that when it came to picturing women in the magazine I we would no longer feature them in uh gowns which were incredibly revealing or more to the Mm. point in lingerie and underwear so there was a time when Empire would feature a woman with very little words and just a massive picture of her sometimes in well, just in not very many clothes, and I put a stop to that immediately, but also the kind of language, so we had a very robust conversation, which not everybody, I think, got on board with, but a lot of people did, which was around, you know, we would call women feisty, we would call women sassy if they had an opinion, we would talk about what they looked like when we walked into a room to interview them about how their hair was, about whether they were wearing makeup. We never did that with a man, we didn't walk in and say such and such director is wearing a crease shirt and has a bit of a paunch because you know that wasn't something we did we we showed them more respect and so we made changes in terms of language because I think those changes have to be raw they can't just be philosophical changes they have to be literal changes in the way you craft the title So visual changes, language changes. And then we drew up a new roster of of kind of people we were interested in because I thought we had a very narrow focus. And then the other part of that was really about the people who made the magazine. So I felt the um, freelance crew of critics and, you know, the reality is a magazine like Empire massively relies on its incredible freelance family because the staff team is so small. And we had a brilliant, brilliant crew of critics, but it was not diverse in any way, both in terms of gender or race. And it was, again, I felt like we were just presenting one point of view and that often films need a completely different perspective, but it just helps, even if it's not film specific, it still benefits everybody to have a writing team who are reflective of the brilliant world that we're talking about. And so we made... I feel like we made lots of strides in those areas especially over the last three or four years um but I think there's still work to be done in film generally I think there's still a lot of gatekeeping in film I still think there needs to be work done to bring through certain critics so I think we still have a problem especially in in the UK in terms of um black critics specifically I think it's a massively underrepresented area. And I've always thought that Empire should be part of trying to help any group through, but especially an underrepresented group who will not be given the same opportunities as their peers. Those are things I still feel really passionately about. And as I say, while I feel like we made big strides at Empire, um, I don't think we got all the way there. But I have to say, I don't know if you saw our um, British New Wave issue, which was the issue on stands when I handed in my resignation. And that was, you know, this group of brilliant breakthrough British stars who'd really erupted onto the global stage. And the covers were Emerald Fennell, Kingsley Benadir, Riz Ahmed and Bucky Bakray. Those covers would never have existed six years ago or five years ago, or maybe even four, three years ago, I think we we really pushed the magazine. And I think it was about taking the existing audience with you, telling them we love you, we respect you, we, we really value your loyalty. But we believe, and my fundamental belief had always been, that as a brand empire should be the home for anyone and everyone who loves the moving image whether that's film whether that's tv that doesn't mean everybody buys the magazine because the five pound price point makes that a specialist product which has to go narrower and has to go deeper but if somebody loves line of duty they should be able to listen to a podcast that empire has produced if somebody loves rom-coms they should be able to have a chat with us on social. Or if somebody is massively into fantasy, they should be able to buy the magazine. And the trick is not expecting everybody to go to every product on every platform, working out who we can talk to where, but ultimately as a brand, being a home for all of those people. And that was the vision initially. I don't know how much we actually got there, I still think we could have got more women, possibly younger women, but I think, you know, we were working often with very limited resources, the smallest team Empire had ever had with the with the most amount of products and, and most amount of platforms. But I feel like we did what, what we could and hopefully became a much more welcoming place than the place I arrived at in September 2015
1: you've talked before about the audience as a gang you know the success of a magazine comes from that feeling that you're a member of a gang do you think that also applies to the staff
2: yeah I do and I I always see it you know I think brands have to move from being a broadcast situation to a conversation and to have a conversation you all need to be on the same level so there definitely used to be a the thing with Empire, which is we are the elders, we are the kind of mm. most knowledgeable, and we are going to impart some of this knowledge on you. I hated that, to be honest. I wanted it to be, we are like you. Apart from we are lucky enough to get to do this for a job. So, you know, Chris Hewitt, if he didn't work on Empire, he would be a long-time Empire reader. Same with with a lot of them. I mean, in its negatives, I suppose it can be quite cliquey and quite insular, But it is best, you are a gang, because especially on a specialist title, I do not think this applies to all magazines. I've worked on magazines that had nothing to do with my personal interests. And I think we've discussed this before, which is your job as a magazine editor and a journalist is to get to know your audience so well that you can anticipate all of their needs. So you don't have to love what they love. But in the case of a specialist magazine like Empire... To build a team who have the exact same passions as your audience, that is where the magic comes. And that's, in a way, almost runs counter to what we are told about magazine publishing, which is it's all about the audience and actually, you know, it can cause lazy assumptions if you assume you're the reader. I remember telling journalists I was training 10 years ago, never presume you're the reader. That's just a lazy assumption. Work hard to understand them and then make decisions From that premise, Empire is not like that. Specialist titles aren't like that. And so obviously you still have to have a level of discipline because you can't assume you're going to be aligned on everything. But let me tell you, it makes those journalists in that gang that you're describing in the team, which to me is the centre of the wider gang, it makes those people incredibly valuable. So I think, you know, if you speak to any editor, they'll say that these days it feels like Journalists are replaceable, that anybody can be replaced at any point, probably for less money. There's a sense that, you know, we're just numbers and and we just create magazines and there are 10 people behind us waiting to do it. On Empire, that talent is everything. So there are a handful of people, if not more, on that brand who, if they left, it would have a demonstrable negative effect on the brand. So Chris Hewitt, for example, James Dyer, people... Chris, because of the pod, that pod has has been going several years, has a huge loyal audience who engage with other parts of the brand. Some of them buy the mag, some of them pay for the Spoiler Special podcasts. These are people who have a relationship with Chris beyond him just being, you know, somebody who happens to work for Empire. And I think that puts those people in a very strong position but it it really needs other people I think to understand that they are that valuable because without that gang empire doesn't have a heart and a a magazine and a brand like empire has to be about authenticity it has to be about heart and you couldn't just have any old journalists in there you have to have film obsessives and tv obsessives and people who will argue about whether giving attack of the clones five stars was the worst decision decision ever made in empire history about which is the best lord of the rings film these are, are arguments that our readers take very seriously and nowhere are they taken more seriously than in the empire office and i think the biggest asset empire has in 2021 quite honestly is that incredible group of 11 people who work across the magazine podcasts the website social events they live and breathe empire and their passion is the fuel I think for what keeps that gang together but keeps that gang vibrant and alive
1: so, <laughs> your passion for the brand is very obvious in the way you're talking. The news of your departure came pretty much out of the blue, from certainly from my point of view. Uh, and the Bower statement that accompanied it was <laughs> brief, is a polite way of putting it. Terse is maybe another way of saying it. Can you tell us what actually happened?
2: Yeah. Um, I have to say, I haven't tried to keep this a secret, but I, I you know, people, I think, are uh, wary of asking directly because they also read the statement and the reality was that um the empire job it's it's a massive commitment and as i've said you know the team is 11 people it's it's as all publishing kind of companies have done it's it's had cuts over the years and as, as magazine publishing has gotten a trickier and trickier spot our ambitions haven't stopped, so the brand has continued to get bigger, but the resources continue to get smaller. And the reality of it was that I was working very, very, very long hours, the longest hours of my career, actually. And that was kind of fine when I didn't have a baby, although obviously it's really not, because I think magazine publishing often is filled with a lot of single people who give up essentially their private lives and give everything to their job. And I certainly did that. And I've been very open about that in the past. But, you know, when I got pregnant, I had some health conditions when I was pregnant. I was high risk. I had gestational diabetes. I was already at risk because I was an older mum. And he had some kind of struggles towards the end of my pregnancy. And I'd, I'd kind of flagged that, you know, when when I come back from maternity leave... I'm really, going to have to look at the situation because it's probably not going to be feasible. And the reality is, it, it continued to be unworkable. So it was, you know, there was a week before I resigned where I worked a few 19 hour days. And I just ended up in a spot that I think a lot of women end up in, yeah. which is I loved my job more than any job I've ever had. It was kind of everything I'd always wanted to do. But after nine months of being back from mat leave, I was completely exhausted. I was not seeing my son. So there was that, that 19 hour week week, I saw him awake for 20 minutes in total. And I was, when I was with him, you know, I did that weird thing they do in films where you go in and watch your baby sleep in the dark. Um, yeah, yeah. And I was like, you know, this isn't working out. And unfortunately, uh, myself and Bauer weren't able to uh, come to an agreement on how we fix it from a resource perspective. I put an Offer across of what we've needed, they made a counter, and unfortunately, this is in terms of resource for the team. Obviously, I'm not talking about anything for myself. Yeah, 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 yeah. And unfortunately, we just couldn't. And I basically had to look at what I what I wanted my life to be. And I've never had a problem working full-time. I am a grafter. I believe in the power of hard work. And I also think for me, it was becoming a problem of how you morally and ethically lead a team under that much pressure with resource becoming smaller and smaller and whether I felt I was you know doing the best thing for the team's mental health and physical health and emotional health and I had some real kind of dark nights of the soul to be honest where I was thinking am I I can I keep doing this as the editor these people I lead these people I need to be putting in You know, if things are going wrong, I need to be identifying that and fixing it. And if I can't fix it, then I don't feel like I can do this job anymore. And that's where I got to. And it was a very painful decision. It was, you know, I was in tears when I told the team. Some of the team were in tears. And the reality is, if I hadn't have had my baby, I would still be editing Empire now. And that's a hard pill for me to swallow because I think you don't imagine that you would kind of have to make that choice in this day and age but the reality is in this day and age magazine publishing is in the tightest spot it's ever been so i don't think my company are particularly any different to any other company in terms of the challenges it has so that that you know especially somebody like me who is very outspoken would very much fight for what she believes is her rights and and for the support that i need to be able to do my job i just kind of yeah I lost the will a little bit and and just thought I need to make the best most positive most healthy choice for my family and this is the only choice I can make in this scenario
1: what do you think a solution to that problem would look like
2: yeah because I have to say this is this is what I've thought about a lot because I should just say that I realize I'm immensely privileged to be able to walk away from a full-time job You know, I have some other things going on. The other reason that the statement seemed quite terse is that an original statement said that I was leaving to pursue other projects, including a book and and a TV adaptation, both of which are true. So I'm not leaving for nothing. There is a TV adaptation of my memoir in in the works, and I am working on a second book. So I should make that clear that that gives me a certain sense of safety. But the reason I didn't want that, including in the statement, is I did not want to be dishonest about why... I was leaving and obviously it it wasn't appropriate to say why but I certainly didn't want anything that would be misleading because although this is awkward to talk about and I'm sure it's awkward for Bauer for me to talk about it but the reality is that we have to start having these conversations about women in employment because people are talking about why we hemorrhage women after they have kids and it isn't the, the way it's presented is we make a choice we go oh I've had a baby now I don't need a job that isn't what happens. Like it's that life becomes too difficult. And the the reality is I don't want other women to listen to this and think, oh God, I don't have a baby because I'll lose my career. And I'll tell you, when I found out I was pregnant, I cried to my boyfriend and said, I'm really worried this is going to mean the end of my career. And he said, what you're talking about, don't be daft. And it's because I'm very aware that there are lots of women I know who couldn't make it work either. And I think employers... Mm instead of just saying they want to keep women in employment they have to make practical tangible differences to allow us to stay there but what i would say some practical advice is i i kind of had a a thought in my head where i thought i could scale back not just to make my workload more manageable but for the whole team we could scale back the ambitions for empire there is a a less ambitious version of it that kind of is still great, but isn't as, you know... I mean, we were putting out, I think, world-class magazines every issue with just incredible access, incredible guests, and we were always pushing and pushing. I had to sit and look at, was there a model where we did less stuff?
1: Good enough.
2: Yeah, good enough. Or do we do less... I think audio is a massive area of potential for Empire... Do we scale right back on the podcasts? Do we? And and those are the kind of of decisions that I think editors will probably have to make going forward. That isn't the way I like to edit. I think the ambition is what gets you up in in the morning and gets your belly going. And that's what always drove me and the team who are incredible and, and can get pretty much anybody they want to do anything they want, you know. Um, so my advice would be if you can, if you think it's it's practical, work out a way to make your job and your team's jobs maybe, you know, just take, what can you take out on a daily basis that will allow things to be easier? Um, and then keep pushing, because as I say, I, I, we didn't get to a place we could agree on, but they they did come back offering something. And so what I discovered in that process was I actually thought, they were going to offer nothing but because i'd been quite plain about the issues and what i thought we needed to fix it they engaged with that so i, I wouldn't assume you know how a management team is going to respond and i wrote a, a, a very kind of uh business like document so it wasn't you know in any way emotional just very clearly stating the facts um and and you know that's all i can really say cuz obviously it didn't really work out me um and I I just would also say if you feel it's un unworkable and you have to make a difficult decision you know it's it isn't your fault and not to feel embarrassed or ashamed or any of those things because what I've learned since having a kid is that we have to make difficult decisions sometimes and all you can do is cross your fingers and hope you're making the right one and that's kind of yeah of what i've done and we will see if it turns out to be a massive fucking error
1: mm-hmm. and you know having a kid is all is always compromise isn't it but yeah one of the things that i think would be nice if it, if it didn't always involve women compromising on their careers
2: yeah yeah it is and you know i if, i i I'm lucky in a sense that I had a kid late because I'd already been an editor several times over. If I'd have been in that position where I maybe had a kid at, you know, 10 years earlier, then I probably wouldn't have gone on to edit any of the things I did. I probably wouldn't have gone and lived in New York. Right. I'm very conscious that my career decisions were enabled by my single life and by my lack of kids. Right. And, you know, I knew when I got pregnant that things would be different. From now on, I've I've been offered jobs in LA since I had the baby that I couldn't take because I wanted my kid to be near his grandparents who are quite elderly now and I didn't want to go and live in Los Angeles and put thousands of miles between them. So it, it, it it does force you into making decisions but what you can't have is an industry predominantly filled with the people not being asked to make that sacrifice. And I think there are... And I will say there are other women within Bower who absolutely make it work, who have certain arrangements and maybe bigger teams and who do things differently and are, and are very much able to, to juggle it and to, you know, they work part time, et cetera, et cetera. Mine was very much a specific situation. And I think it's the same on specialist titles, to be honest, because they've predominantly been staffed by men. So I think it's, it's, very rare when these issues come to light because you know Empire's um, mainly a child-free staff but yeah it's it's predominantly been staffed by men especially editorially and there was one woman editor before me briefly and so I think you know it it often can seem more pronounced on specialist titles because they're not set up with lots of women in key positions
1: So how should the industry, not about us specifically, how should the industry be taking this conversation forward?
2: Well, I think, you know, there has to be a reality check about, specifically around talent. And I don't think it's just about the kid thing. I think we are in this really difficult situation where magazine publishing is so with its back against the wall let's be honest it really is Mm. and that isn't to say that I think magazines are, are dying or dead I've said this many times before and I wasn't just saying it because I was employed by one magazines will always live but the reality is that the profitability is getting more difficult um everybody talks about diversification but never truly does it because people think diversify means producing a podcast or doing a new vertical on your website that isn't diversifying i think the industry needs to invest in two things one of which is the tech to build new products and the second of which is talent those are the two things and those are the two things that are being squeezed the most and one of the knock-ons of that is is staff overwork under resource etc etc and if you look at brands that are doing it successfully so I'm thinking of you know there aren't that many but People magazine in the US which is edited by my very good friend Dan Wakeford when they say diversifying they don't mean do a People news TV show although they they do have one and that's essentially like a, a just a telly version of what they do on the website and in the print magazine they have developed this entire broadcast strategy which is People Magazine Investigates. And they are these incredible true crime episodes of an hour, which are worked on by TV experts. There's lots of investment in staff, but then people from the magazine as well who know the brand and storytelling intricately. And they've developed an entire new part of their business, which has in turn become a new revenue stream. And I think the problems on the kind of scale we're talking about in this country is... The risk of any of any real meaningful investment feels too risky to all the publishing companies so when they say diversify they go let's launch a new instagram brand or they go let's launch a new podcast within which basically does the same as the magazine does but what they don't do is they let's invest in a whole new part of the business or really build out a successful part of the business. But I think everybody is so scared of investment because it needs to see an immediate return because of the squeeze on profitability these days, that none of those big ideas, which will transform brands and will make them endure for decades, everybody's a bit too fearful to do that. Um, so they'd rather do a one shot or they'd rather, do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. the, the the stakes are much lower yeah. and I understand why. But my worry is that without those big ideas, what we're going to see increasingly is magazine brands just kind of managing decline and managing reductions in headcount and budget and all of that, and just becoming smaller and smaller and smaller over a period of time. Whereas I think you, you don't have to think there is growth necessarily in print media. But you can see that there is growth in all of these other parts and you can kind of incubate your existing audience in that print media, keep them with you for as long as possible, but use that kind of jewel in your crown to launch lots of incredible other stuff into the brand. So, and and that kind of isn't answering your question, but it is because I think that way you start to build out proper teams for a cross-platform brand. Because I think one of the problems everybody is having is we are getting people across multiple platforms and products, people who only probably ever hired to work on the print mag, you know, 15 years ago. And so you're spreading them and spreading them and spreading them. So your expertise necessarily isn't in the place where you want it to be, but also you physically don't have enough people to do what you need to do. And so everybody's kind of doing what they can in the time they've got and really not doing the very best work they could do And I see that everywhere. That isn't an empire thing. That's a problem with, you know, smaller and smaller and smaller editorial teams, but obviously a demand for growth digitally and in social and in audio and all of these things. And those will be the things that allow teams to be properly staffed. And therefore, for people like me and other women who have kids or people who have caring responsibilities or, you know, just a fucking single person who wants a life and deserves some some time out of work will allow those people to have a healthier um work life balance in
1: that sense it's resourcing properly for everything whether yes. that's whether that's women in a workplace or, or new yeah. projects or new product development it's just resourcing things properly
2: yeah and from the get-go because we have a habit in british publishing of saying let's launch it on nothing and then see if it's a success <sighs> and then if it's a success you can ask for budget then that's ludicrous, you know. Obviously they were different times, but I, I worked on the launch of Nuts and I worked on on the launch of Pick Me Up and I worked on the launch of Look magazine. These were magazines that had millions of pounds in a launch budget, which went across TV marketing, even outdoor. They were launching it properly and it was like, okay, we will see a return in year three, but we're then confident it's gonna make a shit ton of profit. At the moment, you go, we need to launch it on literally zero using, you know, in-house inventory, et cetera, et cetera, our own channels. And then if it's an extraordinary success, we'll give you budget. But that cannot be the way because as soon as you have zero resource baked in from the beginning to then get resource, you have to fight for it because it's seen as new resource. Like, and to your point, baking that stuff into the, just the start of the picture accepting that people will have to work on it and people will be paid to work on it sounds like such a fundamental thing but i think that has to be the shift
1: it's weird and it? it's almost like magazine publishing is taken on a diy ethos yeah you know the sort of thing that you used to see in music or even yeah. in zines has gone to mainstream publishing um okay go back to you uh, what's next, what are you going to do next
2: god I don't know and this is the thing I thought you know what I've got three months I'm going to work it out <laughs> um, I mean look I think that's probably me and magazines done oh. I I know but I I always wanted to edit Empire it was the kind of last one on my list um, apart from Guardian Weekend I, I always thought Guardian Weekend would be fun to do But you heard um, to the first Guardian <laughs> but um the problems I struggled with at Empire, I don't think will be any different anywhere else. And I, yeah. what I could never do is have left that job to then go to another job like it. That would be the worst thing in the world. <laughs> um, and you know, I've been in magazines twenty-one years this year, yeah. and I've had a bloody good time. It do, it makes me sad a little bit how how you know what a roller coaster just in my career from those kind of healthy and days of what I was talking about, multi-million pound launch budgets and parties and massive teams um, to kind of, you know, the, the tougher times we find ourselves in now. But I still firmly believe in the power of magazine media. I firmly, firmly believe magazines will always exist. I think the potential, you know, I've always thought the potential for Empire to be the biggest entertainment brand in the world is right there absolutely right there and it's the same with lots of brands lots of brands have so much potential and so much power that sometimes I feel the people who kind of own them don't necessarily realize the power they carry um so I am now an empire reader um I mean I always was but I'm back to being just a reader which I'm I'm very happy about but I'm, you know, I'm doing, I'm still staying in the film world, so doing some writing, doing some hosting of premieres and events and what have you. And then I'm doing my first novel, my second book, and my third book, which is my second nonfiction. And my first book, Coming Undone, a memoir, is out in the United States of America tomorrow. It's in Canada 10 days after that. And that was bought by Bad Wolf. The yep. production company behind I Hate Susie and his uh, dark materials, and fingers crossed, Touchwood. I can't say anything yet, but there should be some very exciting news about that very, very, very soon.
1: Excellent. Esther will be absolutely gutted if Billy Piper doesn't have a role in that production. <laughs> she's already she's already called it. um one thing i want to say is thanks thanks for being so generous with your time with us i think you actually with this become the single most interviewed person on media voices Uh, you've been at events and all sorts so thank you so much for your support but also you know from a broader industry perspective thanks for always sharing your your advice and you know from the mentoring that you did with the empire and pilot way back and those those zoom (laughs) sessions that you did yes it's been, you've been amazing so if you're not back in magazines then you've got all sorts to be unbelievably proud of so thank you so much
2: no and do you know what and for everything i've said today which I, I think the industry is grappling with you know it gave me a wonderful career and and most importantly i think i met some incredible people just some of the most talented people mm. in any industry work in our industry and the passion and the love that people show i mean it's part of the reason we, we of, often end up in the bind that we do work in 19 nowadays. but it's also <laughs> it's also what keeps our industry so so vital and so relevant and i just think you know it, it, it breaks my heart a bit to leave but it's it's still just the greatest job in the world it really is
1: Right, so I can't let you go without asking you for a recommendation, but I'm going to get specific and ask you for a recommendation either for film or for TV.
2: Right, so I think it's still in cinemas at the moment. Go and see *Censor*, which is Prano Bailey Bond's incredible British horror film. It's her debut feature, and it's just remarkable. Um, we covered it loads in Empire. I think Mark Mode gave it five stars. Looks incredible. The visuals are insane. Please go and see it. And also Herself, which is Phylla Deloitte's, um film, which is about a woman who leaves an abusive partner and builds her own house. Completely different uh, speed. Also kind of a horror film, I think we should say. And then on a telly vibe, Vigil at the moment is completely floating my boat. Or should that be sinking my no, submarine? Um, <laughs> BBC One, Sunday night's, Saran Jones being absolutely incredible. Connor Swindells from Sex Education, who I interviewed recently for Mr Porter. It's um, absolutely British prestige, Sunday night drama at its very best from the producers of Line of Duty and in Line of Duty's Sunday night slot.
1: Thanks so much to Terry for speaking to us. We are very excited to see what she does next. And I'm not sure I believe that she's totally left magazines behind forever. I'm not sure I believe that. Anyway, if you're new to Media Voices, hello. Ah. We publish publish new episodes every Monday. We talk about the news for the week and we interview industry leaders. Um, Almost as cool as Terry every Monday. and you know our whole thing is not all oh, gotcha our whole thing is letting people speak telling us how they do things um hoping that our listeners you guys can learn from that even if it's like, <laughs> oh my god i'm never doing that
0: but we also have a daily newsletter which brings you the four most important stories i am late in publishing every day So you can sign up now on our website or from our Twitter profile, which is at Media Voices Pod. So you'll get the four most important stories for that day, a link to the latest episode, and occasionally a baby picture or a puppy picture.
2: Uh, And just a little shout out to the Artisan Coffee Co. who actually kept us powered through the summer with their lovely, lovely coffee that um, yeah they gifted Peter and I a lovely box each um, Chris is still on the tea um, anyway talking of coffee um we are still on Ko-Fi that's ko-fi not not any other spelling of it um that has also got a monthly subscription option if you'd like to support us in the work we do because we do it and we get it to you for free lovingly in our spare time so uh, you can find that at voices.media slash support
0: but until next week when we'll we be back with a more standard episode where we begin with a news roundup and then go into our guest's interview. Thank you very much for listening to this special and goodbye.